you know, black when black men wearing masks is not a particularly uh, safe thing for the black man. Welcome back to the BMJ podcast. In these public health discussions we've been having, we've looked mainly at the response in the US and the UK, the two countries with the current highest death tolls in this pandemic. It appears that in the UK we may have passed the peak of infection, though death rates remain high. And as we record this, it looks like the lockdown restrictions may be about to be relaxed. In the US, some areas appear to be past the peak, but in others, the infection is now truly taking hold. Yet, there again, uh, in different states, restrictions are being eased. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and to discuss coming out of lockdown, I'm joined by two public health experts. Kathleen Bakinski, who's Assistant Professor of Public Health at Muhlenberg College. Kathleen, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. And also, uh, we're joined again by Sridhar Venkatapuram, Associate Professor of Global Health and Philosophy at King's College London. Sridhar, welcome back. Thank you very much. Um, So, Kathleen, perhaps we could come to you first. The picture in the States is obviously quite complex, depends on, uh, as you said before, what's going on in individual states. Um, so could you give us a quick update on, on what's happening at the moment? Uh, absolutely. So, of course, it very much depends on which state you're in. So we have uh, several states, and again, Georgia being uh, a, a prime example of this, that have begun to lift a number of restrictions, uh, such as reopening or allowing to reopen businesses such as nail salons, Uh, and restaurants and so forth. And then we also have states that have chosen to extend uh, social distancing policies. And then we have a number of states that fall somewhere in between. Uh, And my state, uh, where I'm currently located in Pennsylvania, is an example of that. Um, the, The leadership here in Pennsylvania has come up with a sort of red, yellow, green code um, where they are actually making decisions by county. So they basically say uh, a county that's in the quote-unquote red zone needs to uh, remain under restrictions. A county that's in a yellow zone can have a somewhat minor lessening of certain restrictions while still having other protective measures in place. And then uh, a county that is in a green zone would have greater um, reopening. And so in states like Pennsylvania, this isn't even being done necessarily across the board, but uh, at the state level, but instead is being done at a county by county basis. Um, And a lot of these decisions are being made based on the numbers uh, that are being reported of coronavirus cases. But one of the big challenges here uh, in the United States is that we still don't have widespread testing. Um, So one of my concerns as I'm looking at the different decisions being made across different states is that some of these decisions to begin uh, lifting at least some of the lockdown measures are being made uh, with incomplete data, which makes it hard to know um, exactly whether uh, these decisions are in the best interest of public health. 
Mm. And uh, as you said there, they're being based on, on some data um, that might be might not be complete. But is there any sort of consensus on on the conditions um, that should be met before before lockdowns eased? I don't think I've seen a singular consensus um, on a specific benchmark. I know some states are using benchmarks in terms of how many cases are newly being reported per uh, 100,000 people, but there isn't a sort of set consistent cutoff point. I think the general agreement among public health experts is that there at least needs to be um, a sort of basic public health infrastructure in place in terms of being able to do adequate testing and to trace, to do contact tracing of new cases, and as well as to have the capacity to isolate people who have been uh, diagnosed with coronavirus. So I think there's agreement on generally the kinds of infrastructure that need to be in place, but I don't think there's a, a sort of set number that's been agreed upon in terms of once we get down to this number of new cases, then across the board we'll feel feel comfortable reopening. And yes, at the same time in the UK here, uh, we've just seen that government put in plans a sort of step-down mechanism, including the return to work this week of people who can't work from home as long as they're able to work safely. Um, Sridhar, this begs the question, is this all happening at the right time or are some of these changes premature? So um, I don't... You know, I have to, I have to profess um, ignorance about answering this question because I think that it is has to be answered with all the relevant data in front of you, and I simply don't have access to this data, and I actually don't know who has access to this data. But you know, we need to be able to know exactly uh, what the you know, new infections are, where they are, what the hotspots are, what the rates are, what the absolute numbers are. We need to understand, um, uh, you know, sort of admissions into hospitals. We need to understand what the infections are in care homes, long-term care homes. We also need to understand what's happening in terms of other kinds of causes of mortality, as we know, uh, the same or more number of people are dying at home in long-term care uh, from other causes rather than COVID because the thresholds for admissions to hospitals were raised in order to, um, you know, save the beds for COVID patients, etc. So all of those are relevant information. I don't have it in front of me. And I think that uh, aside from that, there uh, is a real concern that I have that um, the people that are dying from infections in the UK are coming from the most deprived areas in London and in the country. They are older, they are ethnic minority, they are poor. And so if you lift the restrictions, you need to be able to ensure that those communities are have extra support in order to be able to and manage uh, the increased social interactions that they are going to have as a result of lifting the restrictions. And they're probably the people that are least able to minimize their social interactions for the sake of being able to carry out their livelihood. So 
you know, do we have those interventions in place? Uh, and what are all these other kinds of data? And so I wouldn't be able to give you if this is right timing or not without being able to really have a look at all those data and assured that those extra interventions are ready and that there's also capacity for being able to respond quickly and also capacity to reinstate the restrictions um, if needed and what those what those criteria would be. Mm. And it's interesting now that you mentioned, you know, people who are more vulnerable to this and there was data from the ONS, the Office of National Statistics here, that um, said that uh, black people were four times as likely um, to die from from the disease. Now, we know that elderly people are are part um, are more vulnerable as well. We have shielded populations in the UK, people who have been told absolutely don't go out. And there's been discussion of segregating people further into. Uh, vulnerable and, and non-vulnerable groups. What do you think about that? Do you, does that seem like a, a good thing to do or are there lots of sort of potential pitfalls that we need to think through first? So um, the identification of groups into, um, you know, the immune, so people who have had it. I mean, so I would I would think that what people want to know is, you know, how can we separate out the people that have already gotten this infection and uh, are unlikely to get it again and get them out into uh, wherever they need to go. And then there's another sort of the remaining group you want to say, okay, if you've not had it yet, we want to protect those that are going to be vulnerable to having a very severe case or have severe symptoms potentially that are life-threatening and to be able to start to grade the risk of those different kinds of groups. I think that's a very crude way of doing it. Um, And so you would have to really take a look at what the different kinds of, um, you know, natural history of disease has been so far, who's been dying, what are the modes of transmission or what are the different kinds of risk factors all of that stuff has to be put in now the thing about it is that um, there needs to be so much effort taken into consideration because what we're saying is that people who are say essentially if they get a wristband or a certificate or a badge that says i have gotten it i'm now immune and so therefore i do not have to be restricted to staying at home, I can go back to work or do our stuff, is that a lot of people really do need to go and earn some money to do their work. And so imagine the perverse incentives of trying to get infected so that you can recover, so that you can go to work, and what that kind of um, pressure might do to various kinds of people. So there's numerous different kinds of perverse Uh, effects that those kinds of segregation and distributing of different kinds of benefits could be from that. Um, And so I think it really needs to be thought out in in a very clear way. But at the same time, we have to do something like that because Uh, You know, I'm really concerned about children and, you know, a month or two months or three months in an infant's life is incredibly important. And that infant really does need to be able to go get to their medical checkups and get their 
vaccinations and to be able to, uh, you know, be able to get lots of simulations to be able to develop and pregnant women need to be able to get their stuff. So we need to be able to open up so that at least people who require lots of different kinds of healthcare need to be able to go out and get it. But the question is, is immunity the right way to decide who gets and goes out? Or is there some other criteria that we should be using to determine how people are able to move out of their house and, and sort of uh, engage with other people for different urgent and necessary services and goods? Mm. And Kathleen, um, you know, in the UK, if we're segmenting the population like that, in the US, um, it's almost being segmented by by geographical location, as you were saying, different counties and, and different states have have different um, lockdown rules. So there must be that kind of equivalent complexity in, in perverse incentives and all those kinds of things going on there as well. Absolutely. And I, I am really skeptical right now of strategies to try to sort of segment the population or to, to sort of say we're going to, to have extra isolation in place for this vulnerable group and then only open things up for these other groups. I, I really think any strategy that's not, that's not trying to protect everyone from infection is, is quite a gamble right now because we don't know yet. We don't have enough information either about how immunity works or about who is vulnerable. We certainly do know that older people are vulnerable, but we also in the United States have had younger people dying from this. We've seen strokes among younger people, blood clotting among younger people who, as far as we know, were previously healthy. So we don't know all the reasons yet why some people seem to be getting uh, these more severe symptoms. And it's not only older people who are at risk, though, though they certainly are, um, but we also know that in addition to immunocompromised people, we're also having um, all kinds of other groups, including younger people who are ri- at risk, and we still haven't figured out all the reasons for that. So I think just based on where the state of our knowledge is right now, uh, we can't feel confident in saying um, all the reasons for why one group is vulnerable versus another group being less vulnerable. And then the other big challenge there, I think, is just the structure of society that um, the world is just, it's not going to be this clean cut separation between high risk and low risk risk people. We have all kinds of interactions between different groups of people. We have people living in intergenerational households. Um, We have younger people who are caring for older people. Um, And indeed, one of the highest risk uh, settings, certainly in the United States, has been nursing homes. Um, but one of the reasons that many people are in nursing homes in the first place is that they need extra care. So they can't be placed in a bubble because they need to be interacting with healthcare workers and, and other people who are caring for them. So I'm, I'm sort of very skeptical of a strategy of trying to both identify and be confident that we've accurately identified all the people who are most vulnerable let alone being able to effectively um, sort of segregate them or, or isolate them um, and be able to effectively do so. So from my point of view, um, that is not, at, at least given our current state of knowledge, our, our lack of information about how immunity works, about um, who is most vulnerable, I don't think that's a strategy I would have a great confidence in. And I think that might 
in fact, just uh, increase the broader public health risks um, and, and place a lot more people at, at, uh, in harm's way, given what we don't know yet. Could I also add in uh, here, which is that, you know, while we're talking really about, um, you know, how we should uh, open up uh, society again and how we should uh, think about lifting the lockdowns and what are the different kinds of criteria that we can use, I think, you know, I particularly have a view about what are the bad reasons for doing uh, for lifting lockdowns and how how to do it badly what i'm what i'm trying to point out to is that you know in the world we um we had an initial situation where there was a lot of uh, criticism of the who for not declaring this to be uh, uh, an international health emergency or global pandemic. These are two different things earlier so that the world can prepare. Right now, the WHO is saying, please be very, very cautious about lifting lockdowns. And that isn't actually being listened to by very many countries. So it's very interesting that on the one hand, there was this sort of criticism for not declaring this crisis uh, early. And then now, given that they're sort of basically saying you shouldn't be doing it uh, unless there's really a sort of very good reason and, and sort of it's all safe to do it and, and it's being disregarded. So I think that's one thing to watch. The second thing is that there are a number of examples in a variety of different countries, both in uh, rich and middle-income and low-income countries, where there are some bad reasons why people are lifting lockdown. So one of them is essentially that, um, you know, there's, uh, we haven't been able, to, so in certain, for example, in certain African countries, the lockdowns have been profoundly devastating for a variety of different groups. But more generally, it's this idea that actually lockdowns were actually not at all plausible and therefore we shouldn't have really um, done it because this is something that came from the West and we're just mimicking rich countries and we should have done this differently for ours. So we're just going to uh, instead uh, basically, you know, sort of try some other way, but, you know, restrictions or um, the sort of, you know, social, you know, restrictions to reduce infections isn't plausible. And so let's just open it up. So I mean, I think that's one bad reason. The second thing is that there's examples in India in certain states where essentially um, particular industries like construction have been influencing politicians and essentially saying, no, we really need to continue construction work and therefore don't let these workers leave the area. So if they're going to go back to their homes in faraway states, uh, you know, you know, don't let them go. We actually need to, you know, we want the labor in order to be able to keep building. And so that I think is also really shows how this is not a, a good scientific nor an ethical reason to uh, lift the lockdowns. Mm. And I suppose even when the lockdown is lifted, there's going to be a differential in the kind of restrictions that are put on place for employers you know what might 
in an office you could you could say stay two meters apart um but that's that's much harder to sort of mandate in a in a supermarket or potentially on a on a building site so we'll see a sort of you know differential in and the, the other the other thing I think will need to happen and, and has been talked about is it will need to happen in a very gradual, phased kind of way, um, because as you say, obviously some of the restrictions are going to need to vary based on the nature of a workplace. Um, and certainly there are certain things that will be easier to return than, than others. But in addition, given our, our continued lack of knowledge on certain aspects of transmission and we still don't know, for example, the extent to which schools uh, are potentially uh, contributing and, and other factors like that. I think um, as well, given our knowledge about the, the incubation period and asymptomatic transition, any sort of beginning of a lifting of a restriction will want to be able to then at least wait a couple weeks to get a sense of how that's actually affecting um, the incidence of new cases and to get a sense of how that's affecting healthcare capacity. Um, so it will, it will need to be done in a very gradual, phased way where we can sort of tinker with one, one potential small thing, but then we'll need to wait a couple weeks to get a sense of what the actual effect of that lifting is before we can feel comfortable continuing to proceed. So I do think, um, and certainly in the US, there's been conversations, uh, governors have been talking about a phased approach. And I do think that's going to be really important uh, to be able to, to do this in a very gradual, thoughtful way. I think one of the concerns for me has always been um, this way that people have been thinking either at the global level or national level about a gener generic uh, citizen and what sort of policy will uh, impact most people. And so this idea that, okay, so let's think about sectors and let's think about uh, if we implement policy, most people will do this or not do this. And I guess that's, that's how policy levers work. But increasingly, what we see is that there are very dangers to a lot of people uh, in trying to enforce those kinds of things. So for example, in the United States, uh, there was a really so there was a case of someone a security guard being shot because they asked a customer to uh, wear a mask if they want to enter the store and this was seen to be greatly offensive and so the customer went back and with a gun and then shot the security guard um, and so and then also lots of African Americans have been stating, including my own friends, is that you know black when black men wearing masks is not a particularly uh, safe thing for the black man uh, and in because they're seen as incredibly dangerous in normal times so whether it be the hoodie that sort of got people shot or now it's the mask um, and so this raises lots of tensions about like how do i you know how do we deal with this idea that we're going to have to move around wearing masks when most people are scared of us anyway um, and so you know, in general, you can implement a policy that, okay, we're going to lift lockdowns if you wear masks and all this stuff. But we really have to think about can people and can everyone really plausibly do those things easily? Or do they actually have other dangers that come as a result of uh, those kinds of uh, basic safety requirements? I think that's an excellent point that the the sort of 
caveats or requirements that we're asking people to do are hugely different depending on um, the particular circumstances that people are in. And I would certainly add to that, uh, for example, when we're thinking about schooling um, or work being remote here in the United States, um, internet access is certainly not something everyone is able to do um, or able to have good access to. There's also huge differences, uh, for example, in, in children's ability even to eat when schools are not in session. Um, and in fact, there's unfortunately been reporting showing that there's a, a huge increase right now in hunger among children that, that may well be due to the fact that there's a, a huge number of children now who aren't able to have access to school lunches. Um, so in addition to the, the concerns about who is actually able to safely wear a mask or to be able to carry out some of these other um, measures that we're asking people to take, there are also huge differences in the, the health effects of these lockdowns and the extent to which people are still able to have their basic needs be met, um, be it food or, or communication through, through internet or access to schooling or whatever else. So I do think the burden is and should be on public health people such as myself who do think that um, a reopening right now is premature and do think we need to continue um, our, our social distancing measures uh, until we have better data, until we have uh, better testing in place, the burden does also need to be on those of us who are advocating for continued social distancing to also be advocating for ways to ensure that people can actually have access to and safely carry out these various protective measures and that people also can have access to having their basic needs met in other ways if they can't, for example, be getting food through school lunches or can't, for example, be, be accessing schooling through internet if they don't have internet access, the burden will need to be on us to, to make sure we are creating as much as we can on equity in what people have access to in this time period. Um, but at the same time, I really do think uh, right now that the efforts to, to reopen are premature um, and looking at the data in the United States, uh, we've sort of seen cases kind of plateau. Um, we've got uh, about uh, 2000 Americans who are dying every day and we still have um, uh, that range that's, that's held pretty consistent through the month of April. So even though we don't have adequate testing to identify all the cases, um, I do feel a little more confident in the numbers of deaths, or at least it's a little bit harder to fudge that data. And we have not seen a, a significant decline yet in the number of deaths per day. And we also know that we just don't have enough diagnostic testing capacity. Right now, we're at about 1.5 or 1.6 million tests um, per week. And all the, the public health recommendations um, that have, have estimated how many tests we need in this country um, range from at least 4 million to potentially tens of millions of tests per week. Uh, so whichever part of that range you think is most accurate, um, it's clear that we're not there yet. So I think um, we have to be very, uh, unfortunately, honest about the, the sort of benchmarks we know that we haven't met yet for being able to 
at least more safely begin to reopen. But I also uh, completely agree that if we're advocating for continued social distancing, we also need to be thinking about the deep equity issues that's raising for different members of the population. If, if I could add a, a different aspect to this, which is that it's always very hard to talk about the diversity of health situations in countries across the world in normal situations. And I think that we have been trying to have the conversation because this is a pandemic and therefore it's one virus that's sort of entering all different societies. But it's really now, I think, different countries and societies and regions are really going in very different ways. Um, and so we're seeing a, just a broad range of impacts and responses and options. And so, you know, so one of the things is that we've been arguing for testing uh, a great amount in the UK, in the US, and also uh, perhaps, you know, the way that Germany has responded is because of the way that it's sort of ensured testing to get all the information. So that same message in certain African countries has been going through. And the, and a colleague of mine recently raised this point, twice, you know, he basically asked, testing for what? What exactly will you do with your test and your test results? Um, and so there's been a variety of different responses. So, for example, if someone tests positive, then people are put into quarantine and then they're asked to pay for their own quarantine. So all the meals, all the uh, the rent for the space, etc. So this is actually creating a real tension that people don't want to get tested because they're going to end up in some sort of debt um, if they actually get a positive test and they have to quarantine or, or international travelers or people who are coming in from abroad, they come to the airport and then they are quarantined uh, for 14 days and they have to pay for that quarantine. And people are really uh, in a situation where they don't want to do that. So and then even if it was a positive test, what sort of healthcare would that individual get as a result? So there's no real follow through on, aside from the message of test, 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 well, test for what, test why, what's it going to do for the person and what's the purpose of it? Really, you know, if there's no follow up with that, it has really bad consequences um, that really need to be taken into account and different countries have different options available for that test. Uh, and I think this needs to be um, really thought about and really watched uh, as we sort of try to apply the same message in lots of different countries. I think that's a really good point. And I'll just add, um, so so my training uh, as an epidemiologist has always led me to, to sort of repeat that mantra of uh, test, trace, and isolate. But I really appreciated, I think it was just a couple days ago, the Scottish government uh, unveiled their their recommendations and the phrase they're using is uh, test, trace, isolate, and support. And I really like the addition of that support, the idea that if you are testing to identify people who've, who've been exposed or are confirmed cases of coronavirus and you're tracing their contacts and you're asking people who do have coronavirus to uh, isolate, you also need to have that support in place so that people are not um, you know, going without food or having to pay huge sums of money in order to be able to set themselves up to isolate um, and that are, they are not um, unable to get their other needed medications or whatever it is that they may need. So I think adding that word support 
to that classic public health mantra of test, trace, and isolate is a really important addition. Um, and I absolutely agree that exactly what that ends up looking like is certainly going to vary across different countries and different communities. But I think that the general principle that uh, if we are asking people to make those kinds of potential sacrifices in their lives and to having to be quarantined or isolated for some period of time, that the the requirement to provide support ethically is is absolutely there and should be part of the public health intervention and treated as an inherent part of the intervention just as much as testing or contact tracing are. If I could add on to that, I mean, that's so... Uh, important, Sorry. but it also is a really wonderful kind of loop, I guess, is that we began, you know, these discussions a few weeks ago talking about uh, epidemiological modeling and how controversial they were and what they said and what they didn't say and how policies were implemented. And, you know, one of my critiques then was that these epidemiological modelers, uh, you know, weren't incorporating social values and ethics into their interpretations or policy options that they were providing politicians and policymakers. And so those models are very much the contain and control, control approach is that, you know, if we test and we trace and we isolate, this is what we can expect in terms of how the, how the infections go down. So this, you know, this Scottish model, which says we support is not a, you know, it's not a scientific or a, um, um, as, you know, a medical criteria. It's a social value uh, sort of insertion of it. So I, I think that that is a really important recognition, and it's something that we should be thinking about when we are looking at the the you know sort of the lifting. Is that not only is it simply a scientific issue around you know what will happen to the infections going up and down, but also what you know what are the different kinds of social values that we need to be um, making explicit so that um you know we we show that it's not just the biological aspects that we're looking at but we're also very much interested in the the human and social and ethical aspects and i think that uh, looping back to that first one is a nice place to leave this conversation. Srida, Kathleen, thank you very much for taking some time to talk to us on the podcast this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. So that's it for this episode. We'll be back very soon with more well-being, uh, more talk evidence, and another one of these public health discussions. So make sure that you don't miss out on them. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from. All of our COVID content is available for free at the moment, bmj.com slash coronavirus. It has a full list of everything we're publishing. And if you look back in our podcast feed, which is all at bmj.com slash podcasts, you can find out everything that we've been doing in audio. There you can also find out how to get in touch. So if there is anything that you want to find out about, get in touch and we'll do that for you. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening. <laughs>